Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. So for those who don't know me, my name is Ken Wegren. I'm a guest up here. I'm filling in for Nathan, in between Nathan and David. And just going to jump right in. This morning I want to talk to you about an emotion. And the power of emotion is an awesome thing. It's amazing. If we reflect on our lives, we'll probably see that emotions lead to a lot of our actions. Fear can often shut us down or make us into hiding. You would be amazed at the things I, I've been doing in my house to make our six-month-old girl eat and smile or laugh, and uh, the silly things that I would do just to feel that joy and get that smile from my baby, um, you'd be very surprised. If we looked at our bank accounts or the amount of time that we spend in our pursuit of joy, it probably would be a great reflection on our lives. Christ connects this. He says, if we love him, we will obey him. He connects this, this emotion of love into an action, into obeying him. And so this morning I want to talk about an emotion, uh, a deeper and a little bit of a complex one, shame. It's not simple to describe shame, and it's often hard to root it out in our lives. It can be deeply painful, it can be negative, it can cause doubt or depression. It can destroy relationships, it hinders our ability to share the gospel. Shame goes it can also have like a positive effect. It can cause us to turn from our sin. It can cause us to avoid it, to repent from it. David shared some great examples this morning in Sunday school about shame leading to conversion. Shame goes deeper than just feeling guilt at a behavior, though. It's something that affects how we view ourselves. Am I good enough? How do I compare with that person? Am I worthy enough? Am I worthy to be loved? Has this sin made me a broken person? Shame is all around us, it's in our culture, it's in our workplaces, it's here in our church, and it's in myself. And there are many places where we give it much too much power. And there's places where we give it too little power. We hold back from speaking truth to each other in the hopes that we don't cause shame to somebody. We actually can be afraid to cause shame to our, our family, to our friends. We live in a day where to shame someone for any reason, or even to experience shame is taboo. So today, this is what I want to talk through. I want to give some examples about it, just really focus in on it. And I can only spend some time on a sliver of it, so I really want to focus in on how shame can cause us to have a man-centered view versus a God-centered view. We can be more concerned about experiencing shame from our fellow man than we are following God's word. So if we could, we could stand for the word. Um, if you have your Bibles, you're free to open it up. Um, Mark 8. 31 through 38. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would give me wisdom and truth this morning in my preaching. Guard my tongue, please, Father. I pray for your spirit to be with us in our church. Give us understanding. Give us joy in your word. May it be effective and sanctifying for our church. Amen. Christ is in the midst of teaching the disciples what is going to happen to him. Teaching that the Messiah would have to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and ultimately resurrected. He said this plain and clear for the disciples, and from their perspective, as well as Peter's, it must have been shocking to hear this. This is clearly news to them. It's not how they would have envisioned their Savior coming. The disciples are expecting the Messiah to come in power, and their version of power. They're expecting him to come in strength, someone who establishes his rule in a very visible way. What a shock to hear that Messiah should suffer that the Christ should be resurrected and killed. And it takes Peter by surprise that he feels the need to pull Christ aside to correct and to rebuke him. To convey that this couldn't possibly be the way of Christ coming into power. And Matthew adds additional words about Peter's rebuke. Peter says, far be be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter didn't want Jesus to have this experience. And Christ's response is interesting. It says that he turns and he looks at his disciples and while Peter's rebuking him, he rebukes Peter. And he says sternly for all to hear, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What a thing to hear from Jesus. Peter is strongly corrected and called out right in front of the other disciples. He didn't understand he was being used by Satan to discourage Christ and Jesus tells us his mistake plainly. Peter's problem is that he has his eyes on the ways of men and on the things of men. He wasn't lining up with the things of God. We don't get the impression that Peter is deliberately trying to reject God or to embrace Satan, but just by fixing his eyes on the world and the ways of men, he lines up with Satan. After this, Jesus goes farther still in his rebuke of Peter, and he calls the crowds and the disciples to him to give these statements. He proceeds to lay out exactly the cost to follow Jesus. Jesus proceeds to lay out that a life of following him is to deny oneself. He expects his people to do this willingly and unashamedly. To take up the cross means that we will expect to have to suffer, that we will be rejected and despised like him, expect to have our lives lay down to follow him. And Christ makes clear that losing one's life for the sake of the gospel is how we will save ours. Then near the end of this section, we receive this statement that I want us all to consider. Forever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with his angels, with his holy angels. Picture that image. On one side, you have a sinful, adulterous, wicked generation. 
It's the same generation we live in right now. On the other side, we have Christ coming in the glory of his Father with all the angels. And in order to feel shame of Christ, you have to do it in front of wicked and shame, uh, wicked uh, and adulterous people. To be ashamed of Jesus is to pursue the acceptance of sinful and wicked people over him. To be more concerned about ourselves before men than in front of Christ. It leads me to wonder, where in my life have I been ashamed of Christ? How does that commonly display itself? I thought I'd ask a series of questions, not, not as an indictment or an accusation, but more as a reflection. Maybe you will share some of these things with me, and these questions were helpful for me to kind of examine my life. So if you will, I'm going to ask a series and ask you to take the time and examine yourselves. Am I quick to suggest the power of prayer and to pray? Am I shy or embarrassed to pray with a brother or sister in public? Am I willing to read the Bible in public? Are you hesitant to do so at work on a break? Do my coworkers or peers know that I'm a Christian or what I stand for? Am I slow to speak out on issues that matter to Christ? What holds me back in these situations? Am I hesitant to thank God for my meal in public? Am I ashamed to communicate my disapproval when a colleague or a friend blasphemes the name of Jesus? Do I hold back from confronting fellow brothers and sisters in their sin and calling them to line up with God's word? Am I ashamed to confess my sin? Do I hide it? Am I only willing to confess it privately to God, or am I willing to confess to other Christians? Do I compartmentalize Christ in my life, showing him around some people and not around others? Do I have groups of friends that I rarely talk with Christ about, and others I do often? In our families, do I avoid speaking of godly things in order to keep fellowship with them and not have them pull away? Am I willing to pursue Christ even if it causes division in my family where necessary? Do I let my shortcomings or awkwardness or fear of being embarrassed stop me from pursuing people? Do I let it stop me from sharing the gospel? These are just some questions to give some color or reflection. I hope you can consider them. Shame is present in all our lives in a variety of ways. But I'd like to call us this morning to view the shame that we have through the lens of God's word. There are ways that shame has a place in a Christian's life, and there are ways it doesn't. We must not allow shame to have power in our lives that is rooted in the eyes of wicked and sinful men. Shame, where present, needs to lead to glorifying God, and it needs to be sanctifying in our lives. So this morning, I thought I'd spend some time. I'd consider what shame is a little deeper, and um, I kind of have it broken into three buckets. So shame is defined as a painful or negative emotion, and it says it comes from one of three possible causes. The first one is a consciousness of guilt. The second one is a shortcoming. The third one is an impropriety, like an improper action or being embarrassed. It it covers a multitude of things. And so I'd like to walk through each of these. And the first cause of shame is consciousness of guilt. We all know what it is to feel guilty. We do something wrong towards someone, We sin in some way, and we feel guilt and shame about our actions. But I'd like to note some things about this. The interesting thing about it is that it requires guilt to feel shame. It requires us to be convicted about our wrongs. Throughout our culture, there are various codes of conduct of what's acceptable and what's wrong. 
Different people groups, different backgrounds have adopted written, unwritten codes, and many of these are universal because God has written them on our hearts. Things like murder, adultery, stealing, lying. Yet many are man-made systems of rules or cultural codes of conduct that are ever-changing. For us as Christians, we have one source, and that's God's Word. I know that's an obvious statement, but we need to consider that we only feel shame or guilt on God's Word alone, and not by the changing standards of the culture we live in. It's also important we need to confront other people's sins or help walk alongside them and call people to repentance. We always must point them to God's Word and use that alone to bring about this conviction. One of the ways we can be ashamed of Christ and His sacrifice is by making allowance for sin or by trying to help lessen others' guilt when we are talking through their sin with them. I am guilty of this myself. We must know the extent of our guilt so that we see our full need of Christ. It is a work of the Holy Spirit to be convicted by the Word, and many times this conviction comes with the help of others, revealing things in our lives or even people around us rebuking us. I hope you have relationships like this in your life, and I have a good example of this. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet came to him, and he tells a story about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had many belongings. He had many cattle, many sheep, and the poor man just had his family, and he had one little sheep. It says even that he shared his food with this little lamb and um, even let it drink from his own cup. And so a traveler came to the rich man and the rich man refused to feed him. And instead he took the poor man's sheep and, and, and gave that to the traveler. And what was David's response to this story shared by Nathan? It says he burned with anger. David wanted to kill this man. It's at this response that Nathan hits him and he says, you are that man. You are, David. It takes David being confronted to be ashamed to repent from his sin. And out of this story, we have a beautiful psalm about David seeking forgiveness, repentance, and as far as heart to be made new, to be made clean. He pleads to not be casted from God's presence or to lose his spirit. It's just a beautiful response to this confrontation and the shame that is brought to David through Nathan's rebuke. There are other examples in Scripture as well. We see Paul chastise the Corinthians multiple times. He points out that there are those in the church who are taking grievances among each other to court, having those outside the church render judgment. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. And later he again confronts those in the church who are saying there is no resurrection of the dead and that Christ had not actually risen from the dead. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. Paul is right to challenge them and shame them. There is a rightful place to speak up to speak the truth and call sin a sin. We must allow God's word to convict, whether in our lives or those around us. And there are different responses we will receive in confronting others' sin. And the reason I'm bringing this up today is if we are honest with ourselves, it's the fear of people's responses that often hold us back. I see three distinct responses in people reacting to their shame of guilt. The first is an ability to open up. 
It allows for people to be vulnerable and to ask for help. Out of David's guilt, he sought the Lord and he pleaded for a new heart. He was willing to humble himself and to seek God. But there are two other common responses to shame. The second response I see to shame is a closing off. The guilt and the emotions that follow cause many people to hide in their sin. And they shut down and they shut out people in their lives. I'm sure many of us have experienced this emotion. This pursuit of closing off is contrary to God's word. James and John encourage and even command us to confess our sins to one another and to help carry each other's burden. Proverbs tells us that concealing our sins does not prosper and actually has the opposite effect. Psalm 32 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I can think of many examples where I've seen people take on their sin and guilt and hide in it alone. And hiding sin has consequences. It leads them down a path that usually leads them to reject God. And logically, if you think about it, it's not that surprising of an outcome. The person who is entrapped in their sin, but also steeply convicted of it, remember, they're still feeling guilty, they are convicted, will eventually have to reach a crossroads of sorts. You see, it is our natural habit to love ourselves, and we will not hate ourselves indefinitely. Over time, if a person won't come to repentance, they will instead try and lessen their guilt. Not all at once, but step by step. This rejection of God's word starts by rationalizing their own actions. Eventually, the rationalization turns into acceptance and acceptance into approval. We've all seen this. A person who wants to stay in their sin, but also not feel the shame and the guilt of it. We see this often in the Christian that is battling sexual sins, like pornography or homosexuality. They fight in their sin, but they are tempted to make small steps in changing God's word. Thoughts creep in like, God made me this way. Are we sure that God's word has been interpreted right? Or, I'm not really hurting anyone. This is sin really that bad. This causes them to distort and change scripture or just flat out reject God's word. The last response, the third response to shame is anger. Might seem surprising at first, but extremely common. I am guilty of this myself. The person who oftentimes is in the wrong from a sin or mistake, instead of taking ownership of it, will lash out and they'll move their shame to someone else. I'm mentioning these responses because it's in how someone responds to us which makes us hesitant to confront sin and speak the truth. We hope for the open and the vulnerable response, but are often met with people who are hurt and angry. Proverbs says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Hidden love for our fellow brother doesn't help him in his sin, but better is open rebuke. The friend who speaks into a life, even if it wounds, is a faithful friend. I hope you have friendships like this. I encourage you, reflect on your lives. I hope you have people willing to challenge and rebuke you. I hope you have, and you're willing to do so back. One way we can be ashamed of God's word is watering it down to those around us. We need to be bold in speaking up and allowing the shame of sin to work in them. I encourage you, think about your friendships in this church. We need to be ready with soft hearts to both receive and give these challenges or even rebukes 
to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with very soft hearts. So I talked a little bit about the first bucket of shame, this consciousness of guilt. I'd like to talk a little bit about the second bucket, and this is shortcomings. These can appear in a variety of ways, and I have an example to share. Um, I thought since so many other people get to tell wrestling stories, I would tell my own. So I remember starting my, my freshman year of high school, and it was a new start for me. It was a chance just to embrace a new environment. I had this idea in my head that I was going to take up a sport, and I wasn't very sporty. I was 5'3 my freshman year and 110 pounds. I grew a foot the following year. So um, I remember our first match against Perrysburg High School quite clearly. It was a freshman invitational. And as I went onto the mat, I noticed something strange about my opponent. He didn't have a second arm. We did, but it was kind of shrunken. I don't know the right way to say this, but it was just kind of loosely hanging by his side and didn't have any muscle. I didn't know what to do. And because he didn't have muscle in the arm, he did make up for the weight in a couple other ways. I was looking up at him, and he was a few inches taller than me. My grandmother was there to cheer me on, and she would always laugh when she would tell this story because she would always say, you know, I was so nervous. I put my head into my hands, and by the time I looked up, you were pinned. So how many guys get to say they were pinned by a one-armed man in less than 30 seconds? It was not good. So I was embarrassed throughout the years. My parents would constantly share that story and threaten to bring out the videotape. And I actually have it somewhere, so I know they don't have it. But even a decade later, they would bring it up, and at that time, I would feel shame. But there's nothing I could have done. I had worked out the best I knew how. I practiced hard. And as silly as it sounds, I did try my best. The other guy was stronger and had more experience than me, and I just didn't match up. And I'm sure you can relate with examples in your own lives. This type of shame is prevalent all around us, and it's one of the most common we see. People wonder incessantly if they are good enough, talented enough, or wonder if they match up in a lot of different ways. In the business world, we have this name for this um, trait in the leader. We call it imposter syndrome. The idea that you think you aren't good enough for the job that's been given to you, even if you're performing at an excellent level. A leader who never quite gets comfortable in their own shoes or doesn't think they belong. The idea of having shortcomings or not being good enough is also prevalent in our marriages. It's in our relationships. Especially when we compare ourselves with others who may just have a different personality or a different set of strengths and weaknesses. My point in talking through this is that they, this type of shame often leads us to feel inadequate or to feel like we aren't good enough. It's very man-centered view of our shame. And it puts all the reliance on ourselves. When we feel this way, it's very common to shrink back or to not take action. I want to encourage you not to allow this view to direct your life. The great thing is we don't need to rely fully on ourselves. We have the power of Christ to rely on. Preparing to preach this morning, I could easily have focused on polishing my sermon over and over and over again, and I did to an extent. To try and make arguments more persuasive or to change my communication style, I know I'm not the best communicator, not the best order. In my house, 
my wife is by far a way better communicator than me. I tend to be more on the logical side and matter of fact. And we are in a church where I've seen at least 20 men in the last few years come up here and preach. It's a sign of a healthy church. And each of them have strengths that I want to embrace and develop. It wouldn't be hard to feel inadequate among these fellow men in preparing for this sermon. If I was coming up here this morning and reclining completely on myself, this would be a nerve-wracking experience. But I'm relying on the power of Christ and his word. For the word of God is living and active in my life and in yours. I ask you, how would your life and mine change if we relied more fully on God's promises and less on ourselves? If we prayed more, if we lined up more areas with God's word, and worried less about our fellow man's word. The third cause of shame, this third bucket, is embarrassment or an impropriety, improper actions. This type of shame can appear in multiple ways. It can be deep and rooted, like being the victim of someone else's sin or abuse. It's very common for the victim of a sexual assault or an emotional abuse to carry more shame than the actual person who did it. This type of shame can also be as simple as an embarrassing moment. These times, these times of embarrassment often cause us to want us to go into hiding or to shut down. Hopefully you're seeing a theme this morning. I remember a time in my 20s when I was DJing a wedding. I was a wedding DJ for the first half of my 20s. I enjoyed it for the most part. And everything was going well and I was introducing a bride and groom. And I heard the crowd shouting back to me, not a very normal thing, and they kept shouting, and they looked angry. And I thought I had mispronounced it, when I heard the yells, I connected that I had reversed their names. I had introduced them as Mr. and Mrs. Her last name. I forget it now, but not a very good thing, and I wish that night had ended right then. <laughs> it was not good. When we're talking about this type of shame, I want to highlight that it's not just the feeling of embarrassment. But think through how you avoid ever even putting yourself in places where you can feel this type of shame. How many times do you say no because you're afraid to embarrass yourselves? Have you ever been asked to do something that you know would be good, but this is literally the only thing holding you back? Have you ever felt compelled to share the gospel with someone but stayed quiet just because you felt awkward? Look, we've all felt this before. We have all embarrassed ourselves in ways or put ourselves out there and been let down. We can have two responses. We can either shrink back and shut down or we can walk forward in faith. Every year in the Easter season, our church does a meal together on Maundy Thursday. If you're new or haven't been, I would like to encourage you to go this year. It's a great time to eat together, to fellowship, to worship God together alongside our church body. Now, sitting to the left this year over here during our time of worship, and I was singing and praising God, and I happened to look over to the center of the floor, and I saw Jordan Doherty. He caught my eye because, from my perspective, he was dancing. And I should preface this story by saying I didn't ask Jordan to share this, and I hope he forgives me, but um, he's also not your typical type of dancing guy, I would say. But he wasn't shy. He wasn't embarrassed in any way. He was so exuberant and he was so joyful worshiping God that he was literally hopping and dancing. 
I confess that the first thought in my mind was, wow, he's a quirky dancer. But quickly the second thought came, I want what he has. I felt convicted about my pride and I felt shame. I was ashamed that I was holding myself back from worshiping out of fear of embarrassment. I could easily have responded differently. I could have wrote Jordan off as weird or made an excuse that we have different personalities, which are true by the way. Instead I considered his example and his challenge for my pride, which I praise God for. We often don't even realize how our actions on display can convict those around us or even spur them on to seek God's ways. I've been talking a lot about recognizing different types of shame in our lives in the hope that we will examine ourselves. I want to conclude this sermon by challenging us to root it out in our lives. Spend some time this week. Think about those questions. I'm sure we all have different areas that we could be working on. There are various reasons we might be ashamed. It could be pride, either in how others view us or in relying on our own power. Maybe it's disbelief in God's power to change lives. Maybe it's doubt or feeling broken from past sin. Maybe it's embarrassment or shyness. We could be afraid to suffer or afraid to be made fun of or ashamed. And hopefully you've seen a theme in how we respond to this shame. On the one hand, we can shut down, we can shrink back, we can rely on ourselves. We can focus on pleasing fellow men and ourselves. On the other, we can be open, we can be vulnerable, we can focus on the glory of God, and we can walk forward in faith. I thought I would end with some encouraging scriptures that talk about shame and display traits of Christians who are focused on the glory of God instead of the glory of man. The gospel is more powerful than anything the world has to offer. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We are zealous to present ourselves as approved or tested before God and unabashedly pursue his word. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best. Translated, be zealous to present yourself as God as to God as one approved or tested, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 1 Peter 4.16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When is the last time you suffered for declaring Christ? Rejoice in it. Praise God when you suffer for proclaiming Christ. Christians are eager to honor Christ no matter the cost in life or in death. Philippians 1.20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I want to challenge you. What would your life and mine look like with these traits fully on display? How much more joy would we have in the glory of God if we were not ashamed of Christ? What power would be displayed in our lives if we sought fully on the glory of God instead of the glory of man? How many more would we share the gospel with? How much more would we speak up in truth? How much more could we help strengthen each other? 
how much stronger could our church become here in Toledo? Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray that it would be edifying and sanctifying for your church. I pray that you would grow us, Father, that we would have our eyes focused on the glory of you, that we would not allow shame in our lives or our focus on men um, to take root. And I pray that you would just have your word be living and active in our lives and we would be a fruitful church in Toledo. In your name, amen.